You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to episode 162 of a Life in Ruins podcast, where we investigate the careers of those living a life in ruins. I am your lone host this week, Connor Johnnan. Carlton is fighting mutants in the post-apocalyptic wasteland that is Las Vegas, and David is trying out a new career as a bus driver. Luckily, I am joined by Dr. Charles Koenig, who is a recently crowned doctor from the University of Wyoming. Charles, how are you doing? Or I should say, Dr. Charles, how are you doing this day? I'm doing great. I really appreciate you having me on, Connor. I've I've wanted to for a while. I know you've kind of had a busy couple of months. Some things have happened, defending your dissertation, et cetera. Yeah, it's it's definitely my last, I feel like my last four years here in Wyoming have been just like cram full of different types of things. Fortunately, you know, as I, as I kind of in this transition period from grad school, moving into uh, academic career, it's nice to have a little bit of time to do stuff like this. Yeah, get to enjoy a summer for a little bit before you your summer's fieldwork all 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 the time. Yeah, totally. <laughs> for the audience, uh, Charles and I currently work together in Shippo. We we see each other most days. Uh, we went rafting yesterday, and we're both Colorado boys, which is kind of an interesting connection. I don't think you see you see some of that coming from the Colorado Wyoming connection a little bit, but not very often. And we both kind of took different routes to get to Wyoming, which is interesting. And we chat about later, but you grew up in Summit County, right? Yeah. Yes. I'm from Silverthorne, Silverthorne, Colorado originally. How was growing up in the mountains? I've always like visited them and got to leave at the end of the day. How, how was it living in the mountains? I mean, looking back now, I kind of have a, pers- a little bit different perspective, but it was it was a great place to grow up with with access to all kinds of different outdoor activities. And obviously going, you know, we spent so much time on spring breaks and Thanksgiving breaks and and various long weekends going out to Utah to to escape the cold weather. But grew up skiing, grew up learning how to fish and, and hunt and camp and do all that kind of stuff. I realized, especially after leaving high school and getting into college and, and just being exposed to a lot more of the world and a lot more people, truly how privileged of a life I, I had growing up. And so I'm very thankful for that. But but it is certainly something that I look back on and say, wow, you had a very different life than a lot of other people. <laughs> well, you, you had to deal with the constant traffic through I-70. So like you had people like basically invading your city every single weekend, week, et cetera. Cert- certainly that. And I, I can I can definitely appreciate having moved to Wyoming where there's a stigma against folks from Colorado coming up to recreate in, in Wyoming and Wyoming folks cursing every time they see a Colorado license plate. And I understand how it is to be now on the receiving end and recognizing that receiving end of that a little bit more too. For sure. Yeah. Uh, we are both greenies as they call us because of the green license plate, but we have, we have Wyoming plates now. So that's, we've solved that problem. Uh, You're, you're leaving out a four letter word in front of that greenie statement that begins with an F. (laughs) (laughs) We will not say that on the podcast, but so growing up in Summit County, were you kind of exposed to, archaeology, science, history kind of as part of your childhood or was that something that came later? 
Yeah, for sure. You know, I mentioned going out to Utah. That was a huge thing. My dad is from Fruta, so he grew up going out to the BLM lands out there and walking around looking for fossils, looking for arrowheads. So we, as a family, we did that same thing. So we went out, we dry camp north of Moab and just go out and hike around and walk around and look for stuff. And a lot of our vacations were kind of focused on like going to national parks and going to to places like that to get in to get exposure to history, cultural and natural history. So yeah, definitely exposed to it at early age. And it's kind of a interesting thing though. Like I was, I've always been interested in archeology span I shouldn't say anthropology as much. And I didn't know what anthropology was in high school. But I've always been interested in archaeology. But then in high school, I wanted to like make lots of money. So I went to Colorado School of Mines for uh, the first year of my undergraduate degree. And I, ab- I absolutely hated it. I didn't do well. I made some fantastic friends. But my my favorite class was, I think, the like the liberal arts writing class, which is pretty much everyone else's least favorite class. <laughs> so I think that kind of like showed to me it's at least like science like as far as like science and academia goes how i really gravitate more towards the social side of things and i'm not so good at at just straight up numbers and and things like that that's it that's an interesting and for those who are not familiar colorado school of mines is basically like the math science geology engineering kind of capital of I wouldn't say Colorado, maybe Colorado. I don't know if CSU might compete a little bit with that, but like they're definitely some of the top tier. So if you go there, you're very much going to be in that kind of realm. I don't think you, there's many liberal arts degrees that you come out of Colorado school of mines. No classic, (laughs) classic engineering school. So I know there's a lot of kind of cool mining history up in summit County and those areas. Was that something that you were exposed to? Cause you obviously got like a taste of kind of the, not the Southwest, kind of the, the basin or the Great Basin kind of archaeology and kind of uh, Colorado archaeology as well. But was it like the mining history part of it as well? You know, I really was never as, as interested in in more recent aspects of archaeology or I mean, I, I like the history and stuff, but I just wasn't I was always more interested in indigenous, the indigenous record and going out to Utah and places like that. But at the same time. I always equated going someplace else, not in some county to look at archaeology. And then it's kind of like full circle coming to Wyoming and Todd Servell and Marcel Kornfeld had done so much work just north of Silverthorne around Kremlin at the Barter Gulch site. And to come here and then suddenly be exposed to this incredible archaeological record that was literally right up my doorstep, it was really eye-opening to me about that. And then to hear about all the things that Jason LaBelle and and like Kelton Meyer and stuff are doing at CSU, looking at those high alpine game drives and things, it's like I surely there's things like that that I probably walked by growing <laughs> up that I never knew were there. Yeah, I, I, feel, I feel like I had the same experience because I, I spent some time in Bailey, but I didn't really know about the archaeology of the mountains and stuff until Jason LaBelle and kind of all the grad students at CSU really gave me the opportunity and opened my eyes to that. And I, I've kind of been addicted to that since because it's like you said, it's a really fascinating record, but it's not something I don't think that is talked about in Colorado as a whole. It's mostly about I think feel like archaeology talk is Mesa Verde or I think that's about it, honestly. Yeah, I would agree with that. It'd be, it would be interesting to go back now and see what students like 
some at high school and, and middle schools, how much they've been exposed to that. If, it, if it's changed, if it's the same. Yeah. Be interesting. I mean, I think I remember my history class going back to like Pike, Zebulon Pike and doing some of that, but you never really got the indigenous stuff. You know, it was when they interacted with white people that essentially you got right. information about them. Right. right. It's like Colorado history after 1865 when white folks murdered a bunch of Arapaho. Yeah. Well, you know, like we don't want to talk about that part because that is really bad and it's awful, but we'll just, we'll, we'll talk about the rest. Right. It's a weird, weird experience. So you, you kind of had this fascination with the past archaeology. You eventually went to college for it, right? Was that something you kind of knew? Did you go like straight out of high school into college or did you do something in between? So I definitely, I went straight out from high school, went to school mines, figured out I didn't want to be an engineer and then was like, you know, I really enjoyed archaeology. And so I transferred up to CU Boulder and finally took my first anthropology and archaeology classes and just loved it. I wasn't necessarily the certainly was not the best student. Uh, I spent a lot more time, maybe not a lot more time, but a fair amount of my time in Boulder fishing rather than going to class. I don't think I ever I'm not sure if I ever missed a class of Doug Banforce. Maybe I did hard to sell. There's actually a time I remember distinctly, he was teaching a, uh, I think it was a Plains archaeology class and it was right after lunch one day and the room was super warm and I I was struggling to just keep my eyes open and stay awake. I loved all of his classes, but that day and just everything about it was the perfect storm of, and I fell asleep. But, <laughs> and even then the, the crazy thing, I enjoyed all my classes, but I wasn't, I would say, as invested in anthropology, archaeology at that point. And it wasn't until I took my field school down in Texas that I really realized like, okay, this is, this is fun. Like this is super awesome and and learning all about that kind of stuff. And then that's kind of what set me on the career track that I'm here today. Otherwise I'd, I'd be, you know, being a fly fishing guide and probably a, a ski patrol or ski bum or something like that, you know, (laughs) very different career paths. Uh, You were telling me and your partner, Amanda mentioned it as well, that you had like invested right after your undergrad. You're like, I'm going to get into this guiding thing. This is kind of the path I see myself on. Is that what, where it kind of went? Yeah. I mean, it was basically like during my undergrad, I was working at the, there's a fly shop in Silverthorne called Cutthroat Anglers. And I was working there and it was, it was awesome, right? You're like early twenties and, and fishing all day, hang out with people that love the fish, talking about fishing. And so, yeah, as I got more into guiding, I bought a, I bought a raft and then I actually bought the raft right after I got back from my field school. So that would have been 2008. And so it was a kind of a bad timing for a guide career, right? To like go to field school and be like, I really like archaeology and buy a raft, but obviously <laughs> we still have the raft and it's, and it's still a lot of fun. That's interesting. So where did, where in Texas did you go for your field school and what kind of work were you doing? Yeah. So the field school, it was a, uh, since I had to work that summer and I wanted to fish and guide, right. I was looking at field schools that were Maymester field schools, which I don't, I don't really know if that's really commonly offered anymore or not. So that's really the only reason why I didn't take Doug's field school in Nebraska. 
And I was choosing between a Texas rock art field school through Shumla Archaeological Research and Education Center or a Maymester field school in Hawaii. And the price difference was like 1500 bucks or $2,000. So I was like, oh, I guess I'll go to Texas. And then I, I was like, I've always liked rock art. It still satisfies that. Again, I was looking at it really as not an archaeologist, anthropologist, just as a student trying to finish my undergraduate degree. Like, what is the fastest and cheapest way I can get my final six credits to finish would be. So I went to Texas with Shumla and it was a rock art specific field school learning how to record rock art figures, record rock art sites, do illustrations, take photos, and do a lot of the same types of documentation that you would do at any other archaeological site, whether you have a large feature you're mapping or doing artifact illustrations. And But what really struck me was how you have this confluence of archaeological research and archaeological methods and and things coming together to address different aspects, different questions in that region specifically, because you have this incredible polychromatic rock art that's all about these cosmology and and religious views of indigenous folks who lived there several thousand years ago. So you have this incredible record that's showing you one thing, and then you have the, let's call it the dirt archaeological record that is, as anywhere else, is is chipstone, burned rock, fiber, perishable artifacts and things, and and trying to, seeing archaeologists trying to bring those records together to learn, have a more holistic picture of what's going on in the past. And I think that was one of the major things that really just drew me in. And I think for me especially, that was probably one of the first times where and really, it's a it's a big thing right now in archaeology, but humanizing the past. In my career up to that point, it was just vague, like indigenous people, right? And it at that point, it's prehistoric prehistoric folks, prehistoric mm-hmm. humans, all these types of stuff. And then suddenly, it's like, oh no, these really really fired home for me. Like these are indigenous people. They behave the exact same as we do now. They had the same hopes, dreams, and aspirations. They loved. They cried. They laughed. All these things that that many folks in our, our anthropology and archaeology kind of take for granted, but coming from the public facing stuff, um, you can lose that appreciation for look, looking at the past and looking at the archaeological record. So this, this place kind of gave you that little bit of both. And then obviously I think that shaped how your career went from there and how you studied things in the future. Cause you kind of, it seems like you still use, um, and we'll talk about this more later. You still use kind of those methods and try to humanize the past a little bit as part of your, your research. Yeah, absolutely. And in my career right now, I'm, I'm striving to do more indigenous centered archeology span and incorporate more indigenous views in what I do. But I also am always rem- remembering that not everything we see in the archaeological record is so simple as this plant food or this animal gets you 500 calories or 1500 calories or so many different cultural factors that go into people making those decisions. And we still do that today. And, you know, we can and, and status and symbols. Right. So the cars people drive, the accoutrement that people put on their cars, <laughs> those types of things. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting because we both studied underneath someone who's very much math or two, two people, I should say, that are very math oriented. And that's how they kind of view the past. But I think the more recent generations are changing a little bit and kind of doing this this new approaches and stuff, which is exciting and, and cool to kind of see that happening. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I think on that note, we are going to end this segment and we'll be right back. 
Welcome back to episode 162 of a Life in Ruins podcast. I'm here with Dr. Charles Koenig, and we had finished the last segment kind of talking about your experiences that you got from field school and what kind of happened next after field school and in your career. Yeah. So after I did the field school, I came back to Colorado and and immediately went and fished the salmon flies on the Colorado. But during that time, even though I was you know, I had had so much fun at field school. And even though I'm having incredible fun catching fish, I realized that my passion was archaeology. And it wasn't, I love to fish, don't get me wrong, but it's just like that wasn't providing me as much fulfillment as archaeology did. So for the last, you know, I went back to school in the fall, I applied for grad school at Texas State University because there was a new professor that was starting there, Steve Black, in fall 2008, who was going to start a research program focused in West Texas, where the Rock Art Field School was hosted. At the same time, Shuma also offered me an internship that would start immediately after I graduated. So I accepted my master's program at, at Texas State, deferred for a year, was able to work at Schumler for a year, getting more experience, designing research programs, designing different types of recording forms, running field projects, all focused on rock art. And then after I finished that year, I went to Texas State for my master's. That's cool. And sounds like you got a lot of experience. And would you kind of recommend people if, if, if they want more experience or if they want to go to grad school, deferring is always kind of an option. Would you recommend something like that if possible? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I still tell students that today that come and ask me that opinion. I think it's just speaking from my own experience. I was an idiot. Like I didn't, I, 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 I still barely know how to write and coming straight out of undergrad where my papers were total trash, you know, five to seven pages of just utter BS and then going straight into a master's program, I would have failed. Like I couldn't, I was incapable of doing that, but having that year to just kind of like get more experience and understand like, how do you actually do a research design? How maybe get a little bit better with writing? I certainly did not get, I didn't get a lot of exposure writing in that year, but just get more experience, how to ask like different types of questions that maybe are a little bit more new nuanced than if you didn't have that, that background to understand like, Oh, this question is really, really simple and basic, but I can get to the next level of asking something that might get a little bit more interesting and have a little bit, a little bit more depth to it. And it seems like that's recommended. And we've talked about this on the podcast that we say you, you can go into CRM, but it sound it also sounds like if you go to internships and other things, you might get more experience. I think you need a little bit of both. You need like the dirt archaeology, like you're mentioning, but you also need like you're also mentioning you need that theoretical writing, thinking about the past kind of experience as well. And if I think it sounds like internships and other things like that can give you a little bit of both in that sense. Yeah. And especially right now with all the CRM jobs, like if you're coming straight out of undergrad and you can get into a, like a summer gig doing survey and shovel tests in a place you really want to be, that'd be awesome. And then for the next, like it, go into the winter months, if you can help write reports or help fill out site forms just to kind of get both sides of that. But certainly just experience however, paid, 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 paid experience, however you can get it. I mean, <laughs> unpaid if it's really good, but <laughs> yeah. right. if you get a publication at the end of it or something like that. But I, yeah, and that, that was really fortunate. That internship, it's, it didn't pay a lot, but it paid my, it paid me to live. 
So it's, I wasn't saving money, but I wasn't, I certainly wasn't starving to death. I think I know the answer to this, but would you recommend Texas state as a, as a place to go in terms of the city and the archeology, span et cetera? Yeah. I mean, if you've never been to San Marcos, Texas, and it is an, a beautiful place. The San Marcos River runs right through there. It's a great college town. It's 45 minutes from Austin. It's 45 minutes from San Antonio. So you have this incredible blending of cultures, incredible food. And the anthropology department is really great. They have some incredible faculty in archaeology and bio archaeology and forensic anthropology and primatology. They're doing some incredible work down there. So yeah, like Texas State, like I got my I got my master's there. My wife got her master's there. We have tons of friends that have been in the Texas State program and or are in the Texas State program. So it's yeah, it's a it's a great place. Like I certainly don't regret I don't regret coming to Wyoming at all for my PhD, but right when I moved up here to start my PhD at Wyoming in 2019, Texas State had just started PhD program this year before 2018, I think, or maybe I think it was fall 2018. And the reason, the main reason I came up here was to get different experiences. You know, at Texas, like I said, my my master's advisor Steve Black, and who was still at Texas State at the time, he's since retired. But I had gotten some incredible mentorship from Steve. I got some incredible mentorship for other folks in the department, but I wasn't necessarily, the PhD program there wasn't necessarily going to challenge me in the ways I needed to be challenged just to think about earth ovens and and hot rock cooking, which is the focus of my dissertation in ways that I needed to be challenged. And so that's the that was what brought me to Wyoming, working with Todd Serville, working with Bob Kelly, and the rest of the faculty and, and challenging how, how I'm thinking about things. And, and even though like, I don't necessarily, I always agree about like behavior, uh, human behavioral ecology and, and return rates and all those things. It is a really useful way of looking at the past. So did you write your thesis on hearths? Yeah. So this has been, I mean, seriously, at my field school is when I built my first earth oven. And there's a huge shout out that has to go to two people, Phil Daring and Jack Johnson. And Phil is an established archaeologist who's done a ton of earth oven research. Hearth research over the past, oh, 50 years. He did his master's at Texas A&M University in the 70s. He's a paleoethnobotanist. But Jack Johnson is a little bit younger. He's a little bit older than, than you and I are, but he's one of the most enthusiastic people that you'll ever meet in your life. And that his excitement, Jack's excitement, and it was like Jack's excitement and knowledge and Phil's knowledge and experience at those, if those two things, it just made a great pairing to get a 22 year old super pumped about building big fires and heating up rocks and cooking plants. And so, so after, after I did that earth oven and field school, I, I knew that's what I wanted to do for my masters. And the funny thing was I told Steve this ahead of time via an email and I went down for my visit. This would have been, I think, Thanksgiving or Christmas, sometime around there, fall 2008. And I walk into Steve's office and he had just started. So he was looking back now. I know that he was frazzled. And I was like, oh, I really want to look at burned rock middens, as as, as a lot of Texas archaeologists and other folks call these different types of site types. And he looks at me and he leans back and he grabs this book off his shelf and he goes and he slaps it on my lap and he says, What the hell else are you gonna learn about earth ovens of burn rock middens that you haven't already 
written down here. And I was just as I was just like, oh, my God, what am I doing? Like, I want to I want to learn something about these. And, and my advisor I'm, I'm looking to work with is like, basically, you're an idiot. How are you asking these types of questions? What I did was there's some incredible landowners, Rick and Mary Rylander, and they uh, have a big ranch on the Devil's River. And so I want and they have some incredible rock art. And that's how I got to know Rick and Mary was recording rock art on their property. And I was like, I'd really like to do a survey of your ranch and, and look for sites. And I had a vague idea of like, I wanted to look at settlement patterns, right? How, how vague is that? Just looking at how sites are distributed on the landscape. And so I did that and I, I spent, you know, I don't know, 12 weeks or 15 weeks surveying that ranch over the summer and, and into the next fall. And, and yeah, I looked at, looked at how those specific sites, so these burned rock middens, what they are on the landscape are massive piles of burned and fire cracked rock. And so if you can imagine, if you've been to a campfire and there's a ring, a rock ring around the campfire, those rocks will get a, get a little red or maybe carbon stained and black. And if they're in the directly in the fire, they'll start to fracture. And so what happens at these burn rock abidden sites is people intentionally use rocks as thermal heating elements for cooking foods underground. And basically what they do is they would dig a pit in the ground. You inside into that pit, you put a bunch of wood and on top of the wood, you put a bunch of rocks and then you light it on fire. And as that wood burns, those rocks are going to heat up. They might fracture if there's water is in there and starts to expand and, and fractures out the rocks. But as those rocks sit on top of that pile of wood and we're, burns down, they start to get really, really hot. And just, you know, you can imagine like, this is the reason why you cut a piece of steak or cut your, your baked potato. If your baked potato has been in the oven for an hour at 375, if you tried to bite into it, it's going to be really hot. You're going to burn the shit out of your mouth. Right. (laughs) So we, we cut those into pieces and the same to, to help them cool down. So the same principle applies where the larger the rock you have, the more heat it can hold, the smaller the rock, the less heat it can hold. And so for different types of plants and animals all across the world, indigenous people for tens of thousands of years have used this technology, earth ovens, to cook different types of plants. And so once the wood burns down, you have this bed of hot rocks in the bottom of your pit. You put a bunch of green packing material on top of that bed of hot rocks. That's going to provide a barrier between your food and and what's your, your heating element. It's going to provide a lot of moisture too. So you put your food on top of packing material, cover it with more packing material, and then seal it all with earth. So if you've ever done a like goat roast or a sheep roast or a pig roast underground or even done a barbecue pit, it's the same type of idea where you seal that in so all the heat and all the moisture stays in that environment. And in an earth oven, with all that green packing material, everything essentially heats up to around the boiling point of water. So around 100 degrees Celsius, 190 degrees Fahrenheit, 200 degrees Fahrenheit. And it cooks at that temperature for a really long time. So you can think of an earth oven as a pre-industrial crock pot. And so when you look at the landscape in Texas and across the Southwest and arguably all over North America, you have these locations that are these massive piles of firecrack and burned rock, a burned rock midden, a roasting pit, an earth oven facility. And what they represent are places where indigenous folks return to many times 
to build earth ovens. And a lot of depending on what foods they're cooking, if they're cooking plants like agave or camas or things with lots of inulin, a really complex carbohydrate or complex chain carbohydrate that has to be broken down so we can digest it. They have to have really big rocks because those have to cook for 36 plus hours. If you're cooking a few rabbits or some like biscuit root or sago lily or things, you can cook for a shorter amount of time. So you can use a little bit smaller rocks. And so we can look at where are these sites located on the landscape, what were indigenous people kind of, why were they choosing to use those specific locations? How does this play into the bigger picture of their settlement patterns, mobility, cosmology, so on and so forth? I, I don't know if a lot of people think about hearths or these earth ovens as something like that, but they are. And you've you fully convinced me through your research is that they are kind of an interesting and they do touch on all those aspects of culture and of human life ways, et cetera. It's really interesting. Um, and this kind of like transitions. So you, you, you're doing some of this work and you're looking at this kind of larger landscape. And then that kind of continues, right? When you go into Wyoming and that's kind of part of, part of your larger dissertation, right? Yeah. So I was fortunate enough after I finished my master's to go back and help Steve Black, I helped to run excavations at several big rock shelter sites out there, one of them being Eagle Cave. And at Eagle Cave, we have this incredible stratified record going back 10,000 years of, of indigenous folks returning to build earth ovens there. And so what I wanted to do my dissertation on, the first thing was like, why are folks choosing to go back to that site? And a, and a major aspect of this is we know from contemporary folks in the ethnographic record that earth ovens were used a lot of times to provision feasts. It's a really good way to get a big amount of food that you can use to feed a larger amount of people. And, and a good example of this in, in an the Mescalero Apache still to this day have every year do a girl's puberty ceremony, which is a which is a really important core aspect of their culture and, and tradition and, and maintaining their, their identity. And so this still happens and they build a massive earth oven and they cook a ton of, of agave. And so we have this like rich ethnographic and contemporary accounts that say people are doing earth ovens, not just to scrape by. And this is one of those ideas. When you look at the calories that you get out of these features, normally you don't get very much. And so especially Western archaeologists, we have often looked at these and saying, oh, these are probably for starvation or this is a signature that folks are barely scraping by. But that's probably not always the case. It's not I'm not trying to paint with with a very big brush, but it's like sometimes it's probably for that, that people need food to eat and they they're probably struggling. But at the same time, there's other instances where folks are coming together. They're using these big features to provision feasts and, and aggregations and have big parties. And so that was kind of the lens I was looking at Eagle Cave is trying to evaluate, can we look at these two different hypotheses of why folks spent so much time in that site and invested so much time in, in building ovens? And then so at Wyoming, and this is the beauty of coming to a new place that folks are going to challenge you. And that was one of the things that Todd said was, well, how does this, you need to take a bigger picture stab at this. Like, what can you do that's going to he was like, I don't remember the exact conversation, but it's like Eagle Cave is really cool. But what does this mean for the rest of North America? Let's say that. And so then fortunately, Bob Kelly was compiling his radiocarbon database with a lot of folks. That was a way that I could take a sample of dated earth oven features from Wyoming is what I ended up focusing on for my dissertation 
and trying to say something a little bit broader about when people started to use this technology in the Northern Plains, how does the morphology of these features change? Do they go, is it always the same amount of rock? Is it the same size of pit? Does it change through time? If it does change, what does that mean for the different types of foods that are being cooked? Yeah. And I, I think we'll continue this little bit and hopefully get to talk about your results and in the, in the next segment. So we will be right back. Welcome back to episode 162. I'm here with Charles. We are talking hearths. As uh, I also want to tell everyone this, that I had a brilliant idea. We're going to get Charles on a TLC show or HGTV or something like that. And it's a show called Hearth Hunter. You go around... <laughs> Trying to find hearths within your time range, within your budget, et cetera. It's, it's going to make millions. So uh, DLC, HGTV, all those things. Call me. Can, uh, we can negotiate this. But continuing on, uh, <laughs> how did you analyze all these features? And what did you ultimately kind of find out about feature morphology shape in Wyoming? Yeah, so that's a, that's a really great question because... I'm going to take a probably long roundabout way to answer this. First off, the data that I was collecting was features that had been directly rated carbon dated. So that's where I was starting with. I had this list of something like, I think it was 1,200 radiocarbon dates. And then I had to go back into the records in the SHPO database where Connor and I work right now and pull out the actual feature morphology. How length, width, depth was there rock? If there was rock, how much did it weigh? And I had really grand ambitions that I was hoping that every single one of these features had recorded the amount of rock that was the mass, the total mass of rock. Because from my work in Texas, I knew that and and ongoing experimental work that, as I kind of mentioned before, the bigger, the more rock that you have, the larger that earth oven heating element, the longer it's going to be able to cook or the more food you're going to be able to cook. So if you have really big features, that's probably going to indicate something different behaviorally than if you have a bunch of little small features. And from my outside perspective on Wyoming, I thought that it was probably mostly a bunch of really small features. And so as I get into the SHPO records, though, there's a a ton of variation. The problem is archaeologists have done a kind of bad job about being really systematic and consistent about how we record that information. So some folks would would give length, widths, depths, mass of burned rock, size class of burned rock within that, you know, identification of macrobotanical remains, fallen remains, all this type of analysis. But at the other end of the spectrum, it would basically be this is a hearth feature. It is 50 centimeters by 50 by 10. And there's a rate of carbon date. And you'd have very, very little information. So what I had to do was in my data collection, just narrow it down. Ultimately, kind of some of the main key points were just basic morphology, length, width, depth, and presence and absence of burned rock. Because less than 30% of the features had that I know had burned rock actually had accompanying rock mass. And so what I ended up finding out was as other folks who've worked in Wyoming, Craig Smith, Lance McNeese, Russell Richards, and many others had had noticed during their long careers doing contract archaeology that late Pleistocene, the earliest Holocene around 11,000 years ago, those features have almost no rock. You still have pit features. They're probably using just charcoal as their heating element, cooking things like rabbits, potentially small amount of meat or starchy geophytes like biscuit root. 
And then as you get into the Holocene around 7,500 years ago, suddenly there's like a drastic increase in the amount of rock that's showing up in these features, suggesting that it's either a different type of food, potentially more of a, an inulin-rich geophyte. So maybe sago lilies that have a little bit more complex carbohydrates or more more starch geophytes, biscuit root, more rabbits. And one of the really cool things looking at the final record is that it's very clear that indigenous folks were cooking large game. So deer, antelope, bison, probably elk and earth ovens beginning at least 7,500 years ago in the Northern Plains. And the first Camas oven, so Camas is a a really important geophyte resource for folks in the Pacific Northwest and and especially along the Columbia Plateau and into Canada. And the the earliest Camas oven that it looks like we have in Wyoming that came out of the the Tetons around around Jackson Lake is around 4,500 years ago. And that has over 100 kilograms of rock. So what's 200? 220 pounds of rock, something like that. But, and that's, I only looked at that early first half of the Holocene record, but it, it, at the end of the day, it just shows indigenous people change their technology. And we can see that archeologically to cook different types and different amounts of food and more work needs to be done. There's a ton of uh, additional research questions as well. I feel like that's the end of all dissertations and theses is please do more work. <laughs> yeah, there's some there's some really I'm I really resonate with a lot of the memes I've seen recently in, in like academic pages of like at the end of a PhD, you just feel like a total idiot. And you you realize that, you know, you start an undergrad. Oh, you know so much about the world. You get to a master's. Oh, I don't know that much about the world. You get to end your PhD and you're like, shit, I know almost nothing. You know, you're back <laughs> to feeling like an idiot again. <laughs> Yeah, it's just like that 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 lessening of the field. You know a lot about a little. Yep. But not not a little about a lot anymore. Yep. Yeah, but it's so another part of your dissertation was also doing experimental archaeology and using mathematical equations. Do you mind talking about that because I, I found that super fascinating being a Colorado person who's never studied Texas archaeology and never knowing what a lechuguilla is. <laughs> yeah. So that's, so I'll start, I'll start there. Lechuguilla is agave lechuguilla is a scientific name. It's one of the smallest species of agave in North America. And it's about like, whenever folks would cook agave, what you do is if, and if you've seen an agave picture of agave in the, on a bottle of tequila or something like that, it has really long leaves. You cut all the leaves down to get to the leaf bases and all the edible material in agave, it's kind of like an artichoke. It's, it's above ground storage. So it's at the bottom of that leaves. It's not a geophyte like a camas bulb or a biscuit root or anything like that. When you trim agave lechuguilla, it looks like truly looks like an artichoke that you get from the store, and so that is a, one of the plants that folks in along the Rio Grande in Texas and northern Mexico and, and further down in Mexico, that's one of the different plants that they would cook in earth ovens. And so one of the questions that we have archaeologically, and this is where is experimental archaeology is really good, is is understanding the basic physical processes that go into it. Like we we know. Archaeologically, we know ethnographically, we know from contemporary folks that these are the plants are cooking. The question is, how much food could be cooked? How hot does X amount of rock stay given using Y amount of wood? 
And so those are kind of the, the idea that I went into my experiments with was trying to understand ultimately how much food could the features that we see in Southwest Texas, how, based on the overall amount of rock that's in the earth oven features. If you have an earth oven feature with 100 kilos of rock, could that cook the same amount of food as one with 350 kilos of rock? And we didn't really know. The only experiments that have been done had basically just been to kind of proof of concept, like this is how an oven works, build a fire, heat up the rock, cook food under underground and you get 30 lechuguilla plants. And so to kind of get to that point though, how much food can we cook? I started at the basic very beginning asking how much wood does it take to heat up differing amounts of rock to see if we can minimize. And this goes, like you just said, goes back to these mathematical equations, looking at return rates and inputs and outputs and trying to minimize the amount of work that you're putting into it. And so I built three different ovens at a time with uh, differing amounts of rock, heated those with differing amounts of wood, found that if that regardless of the amount of rock you have up to at least 250 kilograms, it takes about 100 to 120 kilograms of wood to heat those rocks up hot enough to cook something for at least 36 hours. And so then using that data, which is a, that amount of wood was about 50% less than had been previously used. Hundred like 100, 125 kilos, 50% less than previous experiments. And then what we found is, especially with our biggest oven, one with 250 kilos of wood, we could cook probably between, we kind of maxed, we maxed out our experiment a little bit. We cooked 62 plants, 62 lechuguilla plants. We could have cooked a lot more. The lechuguilla almost burned. There was so much heat in the rocks. There was like agave syrup, agave molasses, like <laughs> dripping down out of the plants. It coated all the heating element rocks. So that's all the sugar that you really don't want to cook out, right? Because that's all the good stuff. What it really opened our eyes to is that, and this is again, one of these, of course, stop being an idiot gringo looking at these things, right? Indigenous people knew exactly how to do all these things. And, you know, unfortunately we don't have generations of traditional knowledge to, to, kind of help us figure out how to do these different types of features, specifically with Lechuguilla. And so what it what it looks like is, number one, people are cooking a lot of food in these plants. And so depending on the size of the, so if we take our 250 kilogram heating element, we're probably looking at somewhere on the order of like 40 to 60,000 calories, which is equivalent like a white-tailed deer. So it's, it's a lot of food at one time based on plants. Obviously, it's a lot of work to get there. there there's still a lot of investment, but you can get a lot of, lot of food. And then for a lot of experiments, and this is true with a lot of return rates, it's always considered from the standpoint of one person doing it. And earth ovens and this type of technology is something that this is, and again, we know from contemporary ovens, we know from ethnographic accounts, this is never something you do by yourself. And so what we, what we realize is, these are communal features or we didn't realize it. We just provided numbers behind that assertion to say it makes a lot more sense to work together to do this. And by working together, you get a lot more bang for your for your investment buck, let's say. And that even though you have these tiny little lechuguilla plants that are this big and, and don't provide a lot of calories by themselves, if you pool your energy and pool your resources, you can provision arguably some sort of feast and aggregation, especially if you had other foods like a deer, let's say, or a bison to go along with it. And I think that's kind of the beauty with experimental archaeology is that it does create that kind of baseline or it creates the science or, you know, it does that, but, but also there's culture involved and, and things like that change it. But it, I think that's the kind of beauty of 
experiment archaeology, the record and kind of the ethnographic record as well. It's that the where we really kind of get good information from is really combining those three different places and really analyzing it like that. And I I think it's it's really cool that you found out that uh, white people aren't as efficient and uh, <laughs> might not be as good at doing this stuff. But yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, it was cool. And I'm really excited. The one thing that's happening is I'm again at a transition period where I'm I'm technically a student intern at Ship at Shippo right now. And in the in the fall, I start a position at Sol Ross State University in Alpine as an assistant professor. And so I'm really excited about continuing to do this research and and continuing the experimental work and continuing all of this earth oven, like these various earth oven things we've talked about, other other projects and, and working with a lot of different collaborators and building relationships, especially with the Mescalero Apache, who are just up the road in Rio Doso right now to, to get a, a, a broader idea of what was going on with earth ovens in the past. Very cool. I know you're passionate about hearths or uh, earth ovens. What is the one attribute you would have people record when they're finding scattered rock, FCR, whatever you want to call it, like a thermal feature? What would you recommend uh, they record? I think the most important one is going to be the total mass of rock. A secondary, really also important, is the size of rock that's in those features. And what we've done, we've we've kind of done some cool studies we, we did this procedure called rock sort, and this is kind of in one version or another is becoming more common within contract and academic spheres where you size sort the rocks into different size classes and then weigh the rocks by that size class because no one in any project has the time to weigh and count every single rock that comes out of a giant pile of burned rock and FCR. It just is no, it's not feasible to do, but Number one, if you can just get an overall weight, but number two, size class and weigh by size class. Oh, why Why is the size class important? Because again, the larger the rocks, that means the, the longer that cooking time is going to be occurring for. Smaller rocks are just going to cook for, for less time. And, and one thing that's really cool also is if you have deflated features, so deflated earth oven that is no longer in a pit, it's just exposed on a sand dune or something like that. You can pay attention to where does the largest set of rocks cluster. And that was probably where that oven originated and everything else is eroded out from there. Very cool. Well, thank you. And you hear that CRM folks, find a way to do it. It'd be appreciated by all of us who are studying these things. Thank you, Charles, so much, you know, for coming on and, and chatting me with me. I, I really appreciate it. Before we end the show, do you have a couple sources, um, books, articles, videos that you would kind of recommend for anyone who's interested in Lechigia, hearths, uh, earth ovens, etc.? Yeah. Well, first off, you know, thank you again for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. It's always fun to talk about this type of stuff, especially with a, with a uh, friendly audience. <laughs> <laughs> But I, I would certainly, I would certainly also say there's a ton of information out there about this type of cooking technology, earth ovens. Some people call them roasting pits. Other people call them earth ovens. Other people, as, as Connor's been saying, call them hers. But I definitely recommend checking out a lot of the um, public, like newspaper articles and magazine and radio clips, specifically about the Mescalero Apache and and a lot of their earth ovens. So it's a really cool one from Marfa Public Radio. It's pretty short. There's if you can get access to the documentary that's called Agave is Life, it's not always free online. I don't I don't know how to get it a free version, but you can look look at trailers and things. It's a really good. It's about actually it's 
over 10 years old at this point, but Agave's Life is a good one. There's a cool photo essay that was compiled by Alan Ferg and published in Desert Plants, which is available for free. I can give Connor the link, but it's hosted by the University of Arizona. And it just is a really cool compilation of ethnographic photos showing different groups of Mescalero, or not just Mescalero, different groups of Apache uh, building earth ovens. There's a ton of academic articles on this. One of the foundational ones, especially it's fairly recent, is by Steve Black and Austin Toms, Earth Ovens and the Hunter-Gather Archaeological Record. If you Google that, it's you can find it for free through the Texas Beyond History website or download directly from American Antiquity. And a little self-advertisement, uh, I was just a co-editor on a book that was published at University of Utah Press called Earth Ovens, Desert Lifeways that is available as a hard copy or ebook right now. So yeah, tons of references. And I'd also like to say that there's some incredible work coming out of the Pacific Northwest looking at Camas ovens. And um, so check out like Shannon Tushingham and and her students um, work on, on Camas ovens in Washington and Oregon. Very cool. And all those the links for those and uh, the information about those will be in the show notes. We are going to do something a little corny. So because this show is called A Life in Ruins, I have to ask you, would you choose, if you had to do it all over again, would you choose to live a life in ruins? I would. The biggest change I would make is just more fishing. <laughs> well, we hope that you can get a lot of that in Texas and <laughs> get some rafts going and some floats. Yeah, so we just interviewed, I, I just interviewed Dr. Charles Koenig. This is the part where David's promised he's a sticker and if you give us a review on iTunes, he's a liar and I hope he doesn't listen to this. Carlton usually says something here about us being out, but I guess we're out. Thanks for listening to a Life in Ruins podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at a Life in Ruins podcast. And you can also email us at a Life in Ruins podcast at gmail.com. And remember, make sure to bring your archaeologists in from the cold and feed them beer. All right, Connor, tell us a joke. It's your joke time, Connor. Okay, fine. I just got fired from the keyboard factory. They said I wasn't putting in enough shifts. Nice. <laughs> And with that, we are actually out. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV traveling the United States, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, DigTech LLC, Cultural Media, and the Archaeology Podcast Network. And was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.